Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. It's good to see you guys. Uh, today, we will look at questions in the light of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the Bible has to say so we can know what to believe. And if we believe something and the Bible says something different, then we want to search the Scriptures to see whether or not what we find is true. Uh, we'll be taking questions today on prophecy, apologetics, Christian living, uh, whatever it is that God lays on your heart. And if you have a question, submit to. If you have a question to submit, then write out the word question or put a question mark before it. Write your question out, reread it, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it in the in the comment section. And uh, we'll be getting to your questions. Uh, we are also going to be limiting questions to one per person. Uh, we've been getting a lot of questions lately, and um, if we run out of questions, we'll run back up and run through them again. But we want to welcome those of you who are watching uh, from YouTube and from Facebook. Uh, we hope that you guys are blessed by the time that you spend here as we take time to look at God's Word. So the first question that we have is, should the Bible be interpreted literally or metaphorically? And, and I kind of want to look at a couple of different things with this. First of all, the Bible in general, just approaching Scripture. There's a saying that if the first sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. And that's a general rule to follow, and it's a good rule. If you're reading it and it makes sense literally, you know, if it says that um, the that Abraham was sitting on a rock when he met with the Lord, then there's no reason to think that the rock is anything else. Unless the rock has in some way in the passage something that makes you think, well, this represents something else. You can get carried away with typology. You can get carried away with metaphor. You can make it say whatever you want to say. However, there's a point where you go, this doesn't make any sense literally. And when that's the case, then you take it metaphorically. It, you look for what's the metaphor here because it just doesn't make any sense. The creatures uh, in Daniel chapter 7, for example, have to be taken metaphorically. There are all kinds of things in the book of Revelation that have to be taken metaphorically. Let me also say this, though, um, when it comes to prophecy, should you see prophecy fulfilled literally or metaphorically? For example, should the thousand-year reign of Jesus in the book of Revelation be translated literally or metaphorically? If you are a, uh, an all-millennialist or a post-millennialist, then you're going to take that metaphorically. If you're a pre-millennialist, then you're going to take it literally. Is there anything to help us with that? so that we can know, well, is this thousand years literal or not? And the answer to that is, I believe, yes. We have a precedent through the scriptures. Biblically, we can look at prophecies that were fulfilled from the Old to the New Testament. So we have prophecies given in the Old Testament, then the New Testament saying, this was fulfilled in this manner. For example, Jesus was called into Egypt, then the Bible says that God called him out of Egypt so that it would be fulfilled the passage who said, I will call my son out of Egypt. So it's quite literal. And every time we find a passage in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament, it's a literal interpretation. That's just biblical. That's just the way it is. There's one passage in, Corinth, uh, in Galatians where Paul is talking about Abraham and he uses a past event and makes it a metaphor. So we have one example in scripture and hundreds that are literal. So when it comes to prophecy, again, the rule should stay intact. 
If you can take it literal, then take it literal. If it can't be taken literal, then look for another type, look for a metaphor, look for something along those lines. But you're going to keep yourself out of a lot of trouble. You're not going to be misinterpreting scripture. The Bible says to compare scripture to scripture, that we want to rightly divide the word of God, that God's word is what we need for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. Once we get into a lot of metaphors and a lot of types, then the ship can be taken off course pretty easily. Uh, there's a richness in looking for types and metaphors, and that's good. But if you're going to do that, make sure that you aren't making doctrine or what you believe about the Bible from metaphors. In other words, I was in a teaching years ago with John Corson. It was at a pastor's conference. And John Corson said that um, um, he, he, was, he was doing uh, Psalms 23. And he said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And then he goes, the staff at my church is the one that comforts the, the people at the church. And he went on to talk about your staff. His whole message in, his, in that pastor's conference was about your staff using the rod and the staff of God. Now, the majority of his teaching was extremely biblical. That's a metaphor that he made a leap into. And it's okay as long as the points you're making are biblical points. When you use something like that to make a non-biblical point, then you end up being in a lot of trouble. All right, so thank you very much for your question. Um, the answer is as much as you possibly can and that there are things that are obvious metaphors. You don't want to make such a rule that you can't, you know, hang on to what that truth is. So I appreciate your question and we're going to go ahead and take a look at the questions now. Uh, if you're joining us for the very first time, we're really glad you're here. We hope that you are blessed by the time that you spend here. If you have a question, write the word question or question mark in front of it. Write out your question and um, read it a couple of times and submit it to our comment section and we'll take a look at it. We are now going to cut our questions down from individuals to just one per show because we're getting a lot of questions. And um, if we run out of questions, we'll come back and we'll pick those up. So um, we're, our first question is from JG. Uh, JG, it's good to see you. She comes to, uh, comes to us from Facebook. Question, are the beasts and the false prophet in the book of Revelations humans or fallen angels? Thank you, JG. Appreciate that. Uh, they are humans. They are demonically inspired, but they are humans. And there's nothing that I can think of that would even make us think that they were angels. If there was some passage that you're thinking of or maybe you heard someone use, you can go ahead and submit that passage and we can look at it. Um, but the Antichrist is a man. I mean, his number is 666, which is like six is the number of man, seven is the number of God. And so he's like the, the man on steroids, 666, the man on steroids. Um, and the false prophet gets his power from the dragon. So does the Antichrist. And so they all form kind of that, that ungodly trinity the false prophet who was a religious leader, the Antichrist who was a political leader, and the um, uh, and of course the dragon of old, the serpent of old, the dragon is Satan, uh, the opposer, the accuser of the brethren. All right. So thank you very much. Um, he will be. They will be. Uh, they will be men, and um, they will. Uh, as far as I know, there's nothing that suggests that they would be angels at all. All right. So that's great. Um, and uh, welcome, Daniel. It's good to see you here. Uh, so we have a uh, question from Jari. Let's go ahead and bring that in. Jari says, if God created everyone the same in heaven, would we do what Satan did 
or would we make the choice to choose Jesus had we been there? So I'm, yeah, Jari, I'm, I don't, I don't know. Um, there, I don't think there's any way. If God created everyone at the same time in heaven, would we do what Satan did? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, there's no way. I don't think there's any way for us to know. I, uh, I appreciate that question, Jari. Thank you very much. Um, so let's see. Um, and uh, we have a question from Albert. Albert says, um, hello, pastor. It seems that society is extremely interested in the paranormal. Do you think uh, maybe this means through which God will send the great deception mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 11? Hey, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at 2 Thessalonians 2 11 and, and look at what the Bible has to say about this great deception. We're teaching First uh, and Second Thessalonians on Wednesday night. It will not be that long before we get to this actual passage in our teaching. Um, I want to start in verse 10 here. Let me go ahead and put the scriptures up on the screen for you. Uh, and we'll start in verse 10. This is Second Thessalonians 2 verse 10. And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. Let's just go back to 9. Um, it says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So that's the Antichrist. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send, oops. And for this reason, God will send among them a delusion that they should believe a lie. Uh, so if I'm reading this in context, the context would be that it is the rise of the Antichrist. So that there's going to be a lie that is connected to the Antichrist. I also believe that there are great delusions that are around today. I think the theory of evolution. We've talked about the age of the earth before. The age of the earth should not be controversial because God made it to look old. And the, but, but evolution is certainly controversial because even evolutionists say there are major problems with evolution because there's not enough time for anything to be able to evolve. It's far too complex, far too complex. Um, so let's go back to your question here in light of this delusion that comes out when the Antichrist comes out. Hello, Pastor Robert. It seems that society is extremely interested in the paranormal. So yeah, I, I, I think because the paranormal has, has a supernatural tone to it. And when polls have been taken for people in the United States, vast majority of them believe in the paranormal. They believe in spiritual things. I, I look to near-death experiences to see the supernatural because people are seeing things in the, in, the, in the surgery room, seeing things in the waiting room, seeing things, they sh these are documented cases. Uh, paranormal, could it be demonic? Is there really a paranormal? Are they just kind of chasing their tail? I don't know. Do you think that maybe this means, th uh, this is the means through which God will send his great deception mentioned? Uh, perhaps, uh, Albert. Uh, you know, maybe. Um, I think that there's other deceptions that are out there right now. There's other great lies that are out there right now that aren't necessarily through in anything like the paranormal, but maybe. Remember also through the Antichrist, God does great signs and lying wonders. So he does things to win people over to the supernatural, to him being a supernatural individual. So maybe that has something to do 
with that. All right, so we have a question here from Psychman45. Um, I want to remind you that we are just at right now taking questions, one question from each individual. So go ahead and think your question through carefully and then go ahead and submit it. And um, so Psychman says, question, doesn't Jesus clarify that he meant in Matthew 24, 27 and 28, two verses later in 30 and 31? Thanks, Robert. All right, so Psychman, question, did, doesn't Jesus clarify what he meant in Matthew 24, 27 and 28? two verses later in 30 and 31. All right, let's go ahead and look at that. I know what these passages are, um, but I want to make sure that we read them, that we look at them in the proper, um, and, and, and evaluate them properly. All right, so Matthew 24, and we need to go to verses, we'll start in verse 27. Let's see what that does here. Um, so in verse 27, let's see the context. Uh, the context is the Great Tribulation period, and in let's start in the beginning of the paragraph there. Let me go ahead and bring the scriptures up for you on the screen. So um, we'll start. Where am I at? That's not the right scriptures. There we go. All right. So let's start in verse 26. You brought up 27 and 28. Therefore, if they say to you, "Look, he is in the desert," do not go out, or "Look, he is in the inner rooms," do not believe them. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's go ahead and go um, immediately after the tribulation of those days. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heavens and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens and then the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. All right, so after reading that, let's go ahead and go back to your question. I think we're here. All right, question. Does, doesn't Jesus clarify what he meant in Matthew 24 through 27 and 28, which is uh, the, as lightning flashes from the east to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Um, there's a couple of different ideas there. I've always taken it to be that the second return, the rapture of the church is a private event. It happens in a moment and twinkling of an eye. We're caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus said in John 14, 1 and 2, um, I'm going away and if I go away, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Then the return is extremely public. Everybody sees it. Some believe that that flashing from the east to the west is the rapture because Jesus returns from the east and it's just this flash that takes place and it's the rapture of the church. Um, I don't know. Looking at that new concept, I need to look at that a little bit closer. Uh, but in 30 and 31, when he's talking about Jesus coming back and every eye seeing him, everybody mourning, and then a trumpet sounding and going out, so people connect that to the rapture, but it's a second rapture, if you want to say that, where they're gathered together, but they're not really gathered together and then brought to Jesus in the air. When Jesus returns, he comes onto the earth and then there's this trumpet, but it's not necessarily the trumpet of God that we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. And then the, the angels go out in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, we have the rap, excuse me, the rapture passage. There is no angels involved in it. Here the angels go out, gather them together and they meet the Lord on the earth, not in the air. 
in, in the rapture passage, they meet him in the air. So you could say there's two raptures, one before the tribulation period, one after, or something that looks like a rapture um, in at the after the second coming of Jesus, where he gathers all of his elect and they come to him when he returns. And it makes sense. All right. So I hope that answered your question, Psych Man. Uh, if you want to give Psych Man 45, if you want to give a follow-up to that, I would love to go ahead and try to pick up a follow-up if I didn't quite um, answer that question. All right. So um, we have a question here from John. Uh, good to see you, John. John says, after the millennium, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The temple will be where and where will we live? All right, after the millennium, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. The temple will be where and where will we live? Um, the temple will be in heaven. I th uh, remember the earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle, the sanctuary is a shadow of things that are in heaven. There is actually a Ark of the Covenant up in heaven. We don't know if that's the actual Ark of the Covenant that Moses made or whether Moses was a copy of those things. But Hebrews is very careful to tell us that those things were all copies. The sanctuary, everything that talked about, spoke of heaven, spoke of eternity. And so the temple will be in heaven. Where will we live? Uh, I don't think we know at, in eternity. We know that we rule and we reign with Christ during the millennium, but going on into eternity, uh, I think, who knows what kind of things we'll be doing or, or what, um, what God might have us do. So we, we will, there's the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Maybe we'll live in the new Jerusalem. Maybe we'll live on the new earth. Maybe there'll be other stuff going on from God and we'll be called and used by him. I'm, I'm not quite sure. But I appreciate your question, and um, there uh, will be a new heaven and a new earth, and um, the temple is a will be in heaven because the things on earth are a copy of that. They'll be the real and the genuine question. So we have a um, question from General Samble. If I said your name right, sorry if I didn't, Pastor. What? Um, why does Satan need to beat the Lord Jesus? to the millennium. Why does Satan need to beat the Lord Jesus to the millennium? All right, uh, General, I'm not sure I understand your question. Um, Satan beat, I don't know that Satan um, beats Jesus in the millennial. Maybe you want to resubmit your question. General, I'll look for it. Maybe get a little bit more particular on what it means. I'm not quite sure. Um, I'm sure there are people out there that are yelling at it and going, um, this is what it means. Uh, I did that a while back. People wrote down what the question meant. And I was like, yeah, that is what the question meant. All right. So um, we have another question from Melissa. Melissa, it's good to see you. Melissa says, um, question, how do we know when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us? Thanks, Melissa. I appreciate that question. Um, all right. The only way we really know. So we're moving through we're moving through life and we get a sense that the holy spirit's speaking to us how do we know it's the holy spirit the only way we know is if it's in accordance in accordance with scripture and then maybe not even not even then we know if we read the bible the holy spirit's speaking to us 
because it's inspired by him. The Holy Spirit inspired the word of God. So if you want to know what the Holy Spirit says, then you go to the scriptures and you know what they said. Uh, if somebody says, thus says the Lord, that could be the Holy Spirit. But the Bible says, don't despise prophecy. We're not supposed to despise it. But it also says to, um, to not, not judge those that prophesy. So don't despise it. Oh, not despise it, but let each one judge. So we do have to judge it. And we judge it by scripture. When, remember, Peter heard from God that Jesus was the Messiah. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Messiah, the son of God. Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. A few minutes later, Jesus is talking about his death. And Peter says, don't, this may this never be. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. So at one point he thought he was, he heard from God, clearly. Right after that, he was hearing from Satan, but didn't know. So you could be receiving something from a temptation from Satan, from the Holy Spirit, or from you. Those are the three options. And that's why we gotta be careful when we speak for God, because we wanna make sure when we are speaking for God that we know that we're speaking from him. And that's why I encourage people that have the gift of prophecy to say, I believe God told me this because they know that, hey, this is going to be judged by people, whether or not this is true. You know, um, God, thus says the Lord, uh, the church is to, or thus says the Lord, you know, go out and steal this. We, we know that's not from God because it's not biblical. It would be going against what scripture says. Um, but usually prophecies are very nebulous unfortunately uh it would be great if we really had prophecies come that really were from god and, and maybe and i'm not saying that they don't it's just the majority that i've seen aren't um you judge them and you listen to them and you go okay well it'll determine whether or not it comes true years ago we did a, a teaching a series on the false teachings of the faith movement and i documented a lot of kenneth copeland uh, kenneth uh, hagan Casey Treat, um, Charles Capps, a lot of their stuff. And I, I sent off things to them, by the way, first to make sure that what we were teaching was correct on each one of them. And um, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen got back with me, um, actually called, uh, Kenneth Copeland got back, um, uh, Charles Capps called, uh, and it, just to see whether or not what, the, what, what they were saying was really true. Um, and afterwards, after I taught it, somebody came up and said, God told me you guys aren't going to be here. Thus says the Lord, you won't be here in six months. And I said, okay, well, in six months we'll know, but would you do me a favor? And if we are, would you come back in six months so that you can say I was wrong in my prophecy? And he said, sure, I'll come back. And he never did. That was 25 years ago. And um, so that was not from the Lord. So we got to be careful when we're really trying to figure out, is this the Holy Spirit? I'm very careful not to speak for God. As a pastor, that is a real important thing in a pastor's life. When I'm preaching from the pulpit, I don't want to say God would say to you or God says when God doesn't say. I can say I think this is what God would say, but I don't want to speak for God. A very, very dangerous thing to do, I think, is to actually speak for God. And the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. It's going to lead us in peace and you're going to have the fruit of the spirit with it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A lot of times people have their own, um, their own desires. God told me, uh, there was a church I was at, God told me 
that I'm going to marry this girl. Even when she got engaged to someone else, God told me, even when she's going down the aisle, something's going to happen. Then he was stunned when they got married because he believed the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he was going to marry the girl. He never did because it was his own desires. So we get those things mixed up and that's why it's really important to stay with the scriptures and to say, I believe and um, to know, hey, if you believe you've heard something from the Holy Spirit and you're all agitated about it, well, that's not peace. God's going to give you peace along with it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness is all going to be there um, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And God can give peace that's um, a strange peace apart from anything else. All right. Thank you, Melissa. I really appreciate your question. I hope that was helpful. Uh, we have a question from one God 777 question Matthew 24 verse 29 and on speak of the sun and the moon going dark and Jesus will come after the tribulation in another words post post trib thanks one God I appreciate that uh, no so the tribulation period is God judging people on the earth flesh is going to become rare it says over and over again he judges those who are in sin who dwell on the earth the church are not earth dwellers we are citizens in heaven we are pilgrims we are passing through here revelation 3:10 says god says to the faithful church of philadelphia i will keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come upon the whole earth colossians tells us i believe it's colossians that when we return we will when he returns we will be with him and so we are caught up beforehand and that is jesus comes back for his church john 14 1 and 2 i'm going to come again and receive you to myself that where i am there you may be also first corinthians 15 first thessalonians chapter 4 a moment and twinkling of an eye we're going to meet the lord in the air and we're going to forever be with the lord and there's a resurrection that happens at that time as well all of that is pre-trib which allows us to have the marriage supper of the lamb the church when we're up in heaven um, and then we return with Jesus to this earth and that's what you find in Matthew um, in, in Matthew 29 and 30 and 31 is the return of Jesus to the earth so uh, not pre-trib I mean not post-trib God's not mad at the church the church isn't gonna go through it the church wouldn't survive it all authority is given to the Antichrist in the book of Revelation there's no way that we're going to go into the tribulation period and people say well you're going to be protected through it well then how is he given authority over the saints the saints there are Jew are the Jews the Bible says that the tribulation period is a time of Jacob's trouble that's Jeremiah 30 verse 7 so it's not a time of the church's trouble I'm not saying we're not gonna have difficulties and troubles and trials because we are I'm just saying we're not gonna feel God's wrath or the tribulation that comes from God Jesus said in Matthew 27 pray that you would be counted worthy to escape all of these things that are going to come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Why would Jesus ask, tell us to pray that we would be counted worthy to escape all of those things that would come to pass, that we would stand before the Son of Man if we couldn't escape? All right? So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't read that at all as post-trib. I read Matthew 24 as pre-trib. And as I said earlier, whether that lightning flashing from the east and the west is just Jesus being there, whether that's the rapture of the church that happened seven years before 28 and 29, I'm not sure. I need to look into that a little bit more. All right. Thank you, One God. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate your question. All right. Uh, we have a question from Debbie. Debbie comes to us from Facebook. Good to see you. 
And Debbie says, um, hoping, uh, oh, okay, let me, sorry, I guess that wasn't a question. I saw a question in there, I thought that was a question. Um, so, let me go ahead and take a look here. We have a question from Patricia. Patricia, good to see you. If you are new here uh, to our Truth Quest podcast, it's really good to see you. Uh, you can go to anywhere that you get podcasts and you can subscribe to uh, Truth Quest with Robert Furrow. That's the best way to look for it. Uh, we have all of our Q&As, all of our hot topics, and all of our teachings that are there as we put them out. It's got the latest ones that are there. So this one should be up a little bit later on today for you to be able to go back and listen to. Uh, if you have questions, write the word question down, then read it a couple of times, make sure it's clear, and then submit it so that we can understand it. Um, does the Bible talk about pagan holidays? If so, which are they? Thanks, Patricia, for your question. I appreciate that. So, pagan holidays. Um, is Thanksgiving pagan? Is Easter pagan? Is Christ, uh, Christmas pagan? Are there pagan aspects that have been introduced into it? Was Did the church change in 300 and just change pagan holidays over to Christian holidays? Uh, there may have been some of that that has gone on. Uh, but I don't believe that the holidays that we celebrate now, or the Thanksgiving per se, and Christmas and Easter, um, the I call it resurrection celebration uh, because of the connection to the other spring things that people did. Um, it's not the reason that I think we Christians celebrate it. And I, like people don't put up Christmas trees because of the Tammuz tree being brought in. Uh, the Tammuz tree was a kind of like a carved um, totem pole. It wasn't a tree that was decorated. If you look at the history of Christmas trees coming into the house, people might have brought things in to decorate them with uh, in their day, but, but we don't do that. We don't decorate our house to worship Saturnalia or Tammuz. Um, we don't do Thanksgiving things for reasons that people did Thanksgiving. We're thankful to God for those things. And we're remembering the gift of Christ that was that it was given to us. And we exchange gifts for those reasons. Um, could they, could anything pagan have contaminated into the church? Sure, but what's the reason that you're doing them now? Uh, we have, there's all kinds of pagan things in our culture. We use January, that's to the god Janus. Um, we say Saturday, that's to the god Saturn. Uh, so um, we would have to, if, if we were not gonna do anything that had any kind of pagan roots in it, there would be a lot of things that we would have to stay away from. And you might say, well, when it comes to worship, then certainly shouldn't we stay away from that, as far away from it as we can. And yeah, when we are in our worship services, we don't want to bring in any kind of uh, false teaching or any kind of, of, of paganism into worshiping God. Uh, we don't want to do that when we're, when we're teaching or, or whatever we're doing. Um, we celebrate Christmas to remember Jesus and Saturnalia, when you, when you go and you look and you say, well, this was pagan, you start to look at what Saturnalia was, you can, very, you can, you can bounce off of it in a real surfacey way and make it look like Christmas, to, uh, the way we celebrate Christmas. But when you dive in, you realize it's nothing like it. That they, it was for several days. It wasn't even January 25th. It was actually a time before that. I mean, excuse me, it was it December 25th? It was some time before, like a week and a half. Um, there were all there was all kinds of things that were, that you cannot make a comparison to. 
It, so on the surface, it might look like it. You might be able to make an argument if you don't dive in too well. But once you come back in to dive into these things, then you find that there's a lot more that isn't there. And we do have um, hot topics on um, is Christmas pagan? Uh, are we celebrating pagan holidays? So we do have those if you're interested in going into more detail. I'm trying to recall off the top of my head everything that we talked about in those hot topics. I'm sure those hot topics will give you a little bit better. I try to document things really well in the hot topics. So just um, go to our YouTube page, look up paganism, I'll go to our, our page and search paganism and you'll find it or pagan and you'll find it there. All right, Patricia, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, we have another question from Matt. Matt comes to us from Facebook. Matt, good to see you. Matt says, question, if Satan was deceived by sin, uh, by prideful, uh, by, by being prideful before Adam and, um, and Eve, where did sin originate from? I guess I always felt if I am being tempted or falling into sin, Satan and the demons were at the root of those thoughts. Um, so, so thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. Uh, let's go ahead and deal with your questions here uh, in a couple of ways. Let's talk about whether or not Satan is at the root of your, of your thoughts. And the answer to that is no. And I'm going to go to the book of James for that. So James chapter 1 says that each one of us sin when we are enticed by our own desires. And when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. So we have our enticement, we have our own thoughts. Satan is a tempter and he tempts us, but he's trying to get us to those things that entice us. So he puts thoughts, maybe he shoots fiery darts, maybe they're thoughts into our minds. He affects the world. So we see things while we're walking through a mall or why we're looking at a billboard. I, I was walking through the mall to get my hair cut and I, and I looked over into a store that had something playing on the TV and I was shocked by what was on the TV. That's what Satan tries to do. Just he's got, he wants to infect the world so much that we're affected, we're tempted by what we see. And I think he shoots fiery darts into our minds. But the root of our thoughts is definitely ourselves. You cannot say Satan made me do it. He may be involved in it. Uh, he may be tempt, trying to tempt you but it, the root is, is in us. Um, now, if Satan was deceived, um, Satan was deceived in heaven. He was deceived by pride, like you said here. Um, and we don't know when the, the, the celestial fall happened we, or, or in, in relation to the terrestrial fall. So Adam and Eve are the terrestrial fall and God wanted to partner with mankind to rule over the earth before they ever fell, then they fell. We don't know how long before that there was the celestial fall in which Satan fell and took a third of the angels with him. The Bible says that I saw the tail of the serpent as he swept a third of the stars. We believe that that is angels. Um, so was that originally sin? Could I guess there was sin. When God created angels and gave them a choice, they're in glory and they have a choice to fall from glory. I guess sin was there, just hadn't been committed yet. A person had not committed sin yet, but they could have rebelled against God when God gave them a free choice. The first angel that was created that had free choice, there was the opportunity for sin. And the same is true with humans. There was the opportunity for sin with Adam and Eve. They didn't have a sin nature, but the opportunity for sin was there. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, 
I would say, no, you have. The Bible says that the evil one can't touch us. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We've been given authority and power over serpents and scorpions, over all the power of the enemy. The evil one can't get to you, Matt, as a believer because of the authority you have in Christ. And we should understand that authority in the spiritual realm unless you cooperate. So it takes you cooperating. And you cooperate by maybe choosing to do something that is, well, we cooperate with them when we choose to do something that's sinful. When maybe we're tempted in our pride and we're enticed by that and we're like, yeah, I do think I'm better than other people. And all of a sudden we have this thought going on. Um, I've caught myself saying things before, and the Bible says that we'll be judged by our words, and a, a man that doesn't stumble is what he says, is a perfect man, but I've caught myself saying things and, and heard what I was saying and realized, gosh, that's prideful. It's revealing the pride in my own heart. And um, I, sometimes I try to change it right then and there, but it's a good time then to repent. Um, so hopefully that's a little bit helpful on when you are being tempted. Uh, Satan may be involved in it, he might not. Uh, he is the tempter and you have to cooperate with him in order for him to, to have any kind of victory to bring us. He's got schemes, he's got to use schemes to get into our lives to bring us down. All right, so thank you, Matt. I appreciate that question. Uh, we have a question from Saved by Grace and Saved by Grace comes to us uh, from YouTube. Saved by Grace, good to see you. Uh, Saved by Grace says, uh, the Bible says pray that you are counted worthy to escape. What would make us worthy to escape? Because clearly we are not. Um, that's a good question and something that I haven't thought about in that quote. Pray that you would be counted worthy to escape. Um, now I'm kind of just firing off the top of my head here, right? I've been taking time to really look at the passage and look anything up and make comparisons. Um, the only way that we would be counted worthy to escape is by the blood of the Lamb. There's nothing that I can do to be worthy, so it's got to be Jesus forgiving my sins. That's the only way. If you think that you have what it takes to be able to be to make it into heaven and not be a Christian, you're not going to make it. If you're a Christian, you're worthy to escape. Pray that you'd be counted worthy to escape. Pray that you have genuine salvation because there are a lot of people who don't. Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that some are going to say, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he's going to say, away from me, for I never knew you. We have the tares and the wheat. So not everybody is a Christian. So pray that you'd be counted worthy. Pray that your faith is genuine. Seek and make sure your faith is genuine. Then you will be counted worthy to escape that tribulation period where the earth is scorched, where meteors fall into the sky, I mean, into the ground and kill people, water and kill people. Um, locusts attack people, hailstones fall from the skies. There's an earthquake. It's, I mean, there's a heaven quake. It's one thing when, when the earth shakes and what you think is solid shakes. It's another thing if you look up in the sky and you see stars, planets falling from the sky. Just you realize our whole universe is being affected. So we pray that we're counted worthy to escape it. So thank you very much for your question. Um, off the top of my head, kind of spitballing. And I think it's pretty solid, really. Um, the only way we're worthy is by the blood of the Lamb.
and, and otherwise we wouldn't be worthy to escape. So it's by the work that he did that it's, it's well, worded that way. And I'll do a little bit of research on it and start adding that into my little spiel when I cover that text. Thank you, Saved by Grace. I appreciate it. Some great inside uh, on that. So um, just a reminder, uh, right now we're taking one question uh, from people and then we're going to come back and look. If we run out of questions, we're going to come back and take multiple questions. Um, but if you come on and think out what question you really want to ask and then ask that, I won't be announcing that forever, but that is, we will we'll announce it from time to time, but that's what we're doing because we're running out of questions and people are coming in a little bit later, not being able because we're answering four or five from the same person. So we're changing that. All right. So we have a question from Maya. Good to see you, Maya. Maya says, what if you're in an environment where the people do unholy things, but sometimes they do things do you leave or do you stay? All right. Um, sometimes they do good things. What if you're in an environment where people do unholy things, but sometimes they do good things? Do you leave or do you stay? Uh, first of all, I mean, if I were trying to figure out settings like that, I could certainly come up in my mind with settings I would say leave. There might, would be other settings that I would say stay and shine for Christ. The question that I would have is, how involved are you in these things that are happening? What if you're in an environment that people do unholy things? Um, I think of years ago, we were in Puerto Vallarta. We were there with my 12-year-old son um, and uh, my youngest. And there was a boat that was there that every night would go by in the sunset. And it was a dinner boat. And we thought it was like a Disneyland boat. So we thought, that's great. Let's take Chris on that. So we take it on him and it's a party boat. And when we get on there, there's a stage and they start having men getting up dressed like pirates. They start taking off their outfit and women standing around and screaming. And we're on a boat. We can't jump off and swim to shore. So we choose to pray for the people who are there. My wife says to me, let's pray for one couple. Let's just pick out a couple here and pray for them. So we got, we got to somehow try to redeem the time with our 12 year old and um, we're as far back away from the stage as we can be because we don't want him to see that. And we pick out a couple and pray for them. Then we go down to eat and they're sitting right across the table from us. You, you went down during dinner time and I thought, this is great. And I shared the gospel with them and the lady got so mad at me. She told me to, to shut up and to stop talking. And I said, I just wanted to let you know that God loves you. She was like, shut up, stop talking. And, um, but the rest of that time on that boat, she followed me around. So there are times, even when you get trapped in an area where ungodly things are happening, that if you seek to be used by God, God can use you in those areas. I wouldn't go there on that boat to minister to people. We just made a mistake. So um, I think it depends on what, where this is at whether, um, you know, is it, is it a bar? Is it, what, what, what is it? You know, I, there's so many different things that it could be that I'm not sure that I can give you good guidelines. I, I would think I don't want to be too many places where the environment are people doing unholy things. I probably want to distance myself from that because those things are going to affect me sooner or later. And I'm not, I'm not under any kind of pretenses about my flesh and my desires. So 
I need to be careful. Um, sometimes they do good things. Do I leave or stay? Um, I'm going to say probably go, but there might be cases in which you would stay depending on the what, what the environment is. All right. Thank you, Maya. I appreciate uh, your question. So we have a question from Gloria. Gloria comes to us from YouTube. Gloria, good to see you. Good to have you here. She says, hello, Pastor. Um, cessationism versus uh, contentationalism, which is uh, which is most biblical? All right, so I'm not sure what the second one is. Um, I'll tell you what cessationism is in here in a minute. Um, in the light of Bible verses like 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 9, where the apostle uses different verbs, pass away and cease. All right, so cessationism is the idea that the gifts of the Spirit were only for the time of the apostles and they are no longer around today. That God doesn't use the gifts of the Spirit, especially the sign gifts. They might believe like the gift of teaching is still around, but they don't believe that the gift of miracles, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy is still around. I believe they are still around today. I believe they can be greatly misused, but I believe they're still around. I'm gonna continuism, continuationism. All right, so continuationism, is that's really funny when I look at the word now I'm like oh that's the word continuationism uh yeah so that's the idea that these things are all continuing and they're continuing on to this day and I believe they are continuing on to this day but let's take a look at our, the passage here that Gloria gave us and that is the first Corinthians 13 um, 8 and 9 let me get there and I'll put the scriptures up on the screen for you so we'll go this one here all right so this is first Corinthians 13 verses 8 and 9 love never fails but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there's knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. So the argument of the sensationist is that these passages tell us that when the Bible is completed, that these things are going to pass away. That they were only there until the completion of the Bible, which was sometime in the late first century, 80, 90 um, BC, um, AD, 80 or 90 AD, the Bible is completed. Um, and that's, that's the perfect, the Bible is perfect that those things are done away with. Um, and I, I would not argue that the Bible isn't perfect. Okay, God had his plans, God knew what he was doing, he gave us all the manuscripts. Um, but I would say that which is perfect refers to Jesus. That until Jesus is with us, until we meet him in the air as the church, then these things are going to happen. Um, and I think that Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, the prophecy of in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your young men shall see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I think that's the way that the passage says it. Um, tells us these are going to be continuing things, that these things are going to continue on. I don't think that that verse, it's, it's just talking about the fact that there will come a time when we don't need those kind of things, but we need them now. And I think there's been so many abuses in the spiritual gift area that many Christians would love just to back away from them. But I would say, let, you know, that we shouldn't back away from them, that God still uses them today. And we should look for them in the right and the proper use. So thank you, Gloria. Uh, sensationism and continuationism. Ah, that's pretty funny. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Good to have you here with us, uh, Gloria. 
So we have a question here from, I think it's Tamara. And Tamara says, a question, can people left behind still have the opportunity to make it to heaven? Uh, thank you, Tamara. I really appreciate that question. Yes, um, they could give their lives to Christ. Just like in the left behind movies, if you ever saw them, uh, they could give their lives to Christ and they could live for him and die for him, most likely. Some may, may make it. We know that the church is greatly persecuted during the tribulation period. We know that they suffer a lot, but they eventually come to Christ. We know that God supernaturally protects them by taking them into the wilderness. Um, I don't know, some point through the tribulation period. Uh, so Israel, all of Israel will be saved. I think it's Romans chapter 11, maybe verse 28, if I remember right, um, that says that um, blindness in part has happened to the, the Jews until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And, and then they will be, then they will all be saved or they'll be saved out of it. Or the, yeah, then they'll all be saved. So God's gonna work with the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. And there are gonna be tribulation saints that are worked with during the tribulation period. So yes, people left behind will still have an opportunity to go into heaven. Although the tribulation period is an awful time, flesh is gonna be rare. For the elect's sake, the days are shortened, whatever that really means um, exactly. Uh, so um, yeah, they will, will have that opportunity but you don't want to go through there. You want to make things right now. You want to keep yourself ready uh, uh, and make sure the things are right between uh, you and God right now. All right. So um, looking for another question here. We have a question from Patricia from Facebook. And um, I don't think we had a question for Patricia yet. Patricia, Patricia says, I left the JW religion after many years they would disfellowship people that feel fall into um, intentional sin. My question, my question, I go to church every Sunday. A couple Sundays ago, you talked about re uh, religions making man-made rules. And I also found it weird that JWs do this. I'm just learning all that I can right now in the Bible. Does it justify removing Christians from church till they earn their way um, back. No. So the practice of shunning by the Jehovah Witnesses, if you, if you leave the Jehovah Witnesses, if you stop going there, um, they're gonna shun you. Um, there's a lot, there are a lot of things that happen within the Jehovah Witnesses church that are under the protection of silence. And I think that you may understand that, Patricia, and it's tragic. And the very people that are shunning people are people that have sin in their lives that they shouldn't be passing judgment at all. They'll stand before God for what they're doing. Um, and uh, uh, the Bible says that if there's a brother among you who is in sin, that you are to remove them uh, in order for reconciliation, to see them reconciled, and that they, they may know and feel the discipline of God that they wouldn't think that what they're doing is okay. Doesn't mean you wouldn't talk to them. It might mean, and we've done it, where you say to someone, I'm sorry, you can't come to church anymore. You've got this sin in your life and you can't come to church anymore. And our desire is to see them come back. It's not the same as the Jehovah Witnesses in their shunning practices. So thank you very much, Patricia. I do think that was your second question. I think you stuck it in. Well, we have, um, uh, I think we, we had the question about paganism a little bit earlier from you. 
So we have a question now from Stacy. So Stacy says, uh, another one from Facebook. Uh, Stacy says, um, question, uh, we all heard people, myself included, say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why he did this or why he allowed this, etc. But we're going to be worshiping God in eternity. Is there any Bible text to support that we will be able to actually casually ask him your thoughts, please? Thank you. So I do believe that there will be worship before the throne of God forever and ever. God will be worshiped forever and ever. I don't know that every person's going to worship him forever and ever. There may be breaks where we're doing other things, coming back and worshiping him. And remember, there's no light because Jesus is our light. God's our light. I, I think that we're going to have a pure interaction with him. I, I, we can all talk to God in prayer. And I think that we're going to be that, that, that separation when our flesh is changed. We don't have that separation between us and God that our flesh creates, the sin nature in our flesh. We're going to interact with him. We're going to be able to hear from him and talk with him. And I think that we'll be in this perfect communion with him during that time. So that's what I think. Um, and again, I'm kind of going off the top of my head without being able to go and, and put a lot into this. If I were looking at a passage that was about what we were doing in eternity, I would spend a lot of time researching exactly what we're going to be doing in eternity. And it, may, it would make a great um, hot topic for the future. Um, what kind of things are we going to be doing throughout eternity? And I could really spend some time diving into it and studying it. And I would do that. So thank you very much, Stacy. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have another question here uh, from, uh, I think it's Sean. Is that right? Or Shauna? No, Sean. Hopefully that's the way you pronounce your name. It's spelled a little bit differently. Um, but uh, question, receiving communion, do you believe that the body of Christ should be served with his blood wine? There have been some restrictions because of COVID. Um, yeah, I mean, we do communion differently now than we've ever done it before because of COVID. So we used to pass a plate, a bowl, I mean, a, a tray that had the the bread and the, the fruit of the vine in it in two different cups. We put a piece of bread in the bottom cup, put a top cup in it, put the, the fruit of the vine in there, then people would take it and pass it around. Because people have to set that up and pour it out, because people are touching and passing the plate, we went to the pre-made ones where you tear a little tab off and you've got the, the bread, then you tear it open again and you've got the fruit of the vine that's inside of that. Um, so that's the way that we do it now. I think you can take communion in times like this and that God understands it. I'm not exactly sure. This is what we, we've done as Calvary Chapel, right? That's how we take communion. That's how we take communion now. I realize there are the churches that pass one cup that could pose real problems, right? I'm sure that's had to change. Um, and um, so do you believe that the body of Christ should be served with the blood or wine? Yes, I believe it. I think there's ways to do it that can be safe without passing on any kind of, without passing on the virus. Um, I believe that. And I think that we should do every effort that we can do to make sure that we can get that as far removed as we possibly can. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. 
So looking for another question here. Uh, if you are new here, we want to welcome you. I hope that you guys are being blessed. So it looks like we ran out of questions. We have about five more minutes. So I'm going to come back up here and I'm going to pull in a couple of questions from people that I skipped over because it was their double question. Um, let's bring in Debbie here. Debbie says, uh, last week someone stated, once saved, always saved. Can you speak to this again? I know you covered this in the past, but it's nice to be refreshed. Thank you, Pastor Robert, for giving us much to reflect on. Thank you, Debbie. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, so once saved, always saved. Um, it is, I, first time I ran into it, I was a young Christian. I ran into a friend of mine, a girl who had been, who walked away from Christ, was living ungodly. And uh, she said, don't worry about me. Because I was talking to her. I tried trying to get her to, to turn from what, what she was doing. She said, don't worry about me. I've been, I, I went up, I raised my hand. I got saved. And once saved, always saved. And I thought, that's an odd teaching. And then the more I learned about it, the more I see what the scriptures say about once saved, always saved. Um, I've always said this and I believe it. It's, it's weird to make that particular statement and stand. Because if you are a Calvinist, who believes that when you are saved, it was because you were chosen to be saved and you're always going to be saved, and they'll talk about the perseverance of the saints, which is once saved, always saved, then if you are if you live ungodly, they're gonna say you're not saved. They're gonna say that you left because you weren't a part of them. And that, and, and there's one well-known pastor who believes that, he's, he's reformed, and his assistant pastor of 20 years became an atheist. And he says he was never saved. So it's a really easy out when you can go, well, you know, they're never really saved, even though they look like they were. Um, the, the, the person who is an Arminianist is going to say, well, that person was never saved, or that, that person was saved and they lost their salvation. The bottom line is this guy is not saved. And the Arminianist and the Calvinist, when it comes to this person that is an atheist now, that used to be a Christian, they agree on far more things than they disagree on. When I'm pushed to the corner, you know, gun to the head, what do you believe about once saved, always saved? I have to say that I believe that once a person is genuinely saved, that they are they're going to be saved. That's what I believe. Um, I don't believe that you're that Jesus is going to leave the ninety nine and go after the one, and he did a, a work inside of you and and gave you eternity. Um, I don't believe in reformed theology. I don't believe in um, limited atonement or irresistible grace, that there are some that are gonna be saved and no matter what, they can't be lost. And there's some who are gonna be lost and you can't be saved. That, that Jesus only died for the elect. I think the Bible says the opposite of that. So I don't believe that, that's in reformed theology. Um, but I, I really, when it comes down to it, I go, ah, I just kind of believe once saved, always saved. I, I believe that there is this concept that God will persevere those that have had a genuine faith. Will they? Might they leave and come back? Maybe. Uh, but if you are genuine in being saved, I believe that that will result in some changes inside of you uh, that will really um, bring that about. Could I be wrong about that? Certainly. There are a lot of passages in the Bible that relate to this. Ones that would tend to say, Look, you got to be saved. And you got to keep on believing. You got to believe and keep on believing. But you know, those who endure to the end will be saved. And you could either say you got to endure to the end to be saved, or you could say that if you endure to the end, it proves that you were saved. 
But there are a lot of passages that talk about this and um, I understand why people land on two sides of this coin um, just after a lot of study and prayer. And by the way, this is one of the areas that I've changed on. So for years, I taught that you could lose your salvation, but the more I looked at scripture, the more I studied it, the more I really wanted to know what the Bible says, this is one of the areas that I changed on. And I'm not afraid to do that. I'm not afraid to take what I've been taught, uh, what my biases might be, and search scripture and see if scripture doesn't say something different for what I believe. That's why we call this Truth Quest, because we wanna know what God's word says so we can believe what we believe looking at God's word. All right, so thank you very much. Uh, it's four o'clock. That is the hour that we have for our Truth Quest Q&A. It's good to have you guys on here. Uh, Debbie, thank you. It's good to um, talk with you guys. Um, remember to like, subscribe, share, ring the bell. That helps us to get the word out for what we're doing. We're wanting to see as many people saved as possible, as many people grow up and become mature in Christ. If you're on Facebook, then share this. Let's get it out there as much as we can so that people can give their lives to Christ. I just realized that um, I've got Troth Quest. Hold on, let me fix that before we, uh, oops, before I go off air. That is really funny, R-O-U-T-H. Um, yeah, all right, <laughs> that is funny. We'll, we'll um, fix that later on. We'll take it off for now. That's really funny that it was up there all that time. All right, Troth Quest. Uh, so this is Troth Quest with Robert Furrow. It's good to have you guys on the podcast. Um, I hope that you are truly blessed. I hope that God gives you um, that God blesses you and draws you close to him, that you walk, find yourself walking really close to Jesus. We have a service in two hours. Uh, we are going to be in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus talks about being ready. He says, be ready because you don't know the time when the Son of Man returns. So what does it take to be ready now? What do I have to do to be ready now? And um, why do I have to stay ready? Why can't I just get ready when he's going to return? Uh, clearly it says because we don't know when Jesus is going to come back again and we'll get into that tonight. So that'll be in just a couple of hours uh, from right now when we get into God's word in that way. All right. So God bless you guys. I'm going to go ahead and sign out. We'll see you Saturday. That'll be our next, our next Truth Quest Q&A. Remember, we're taking one question from each individual. Uh, so think about your question and write it out carefully uh, to submit it. All right. Uh, put question before it and then reread it a few times so that it makes sense. All right, God bless you guys. Uh, signing out, we'll see you uh, later on tonight or at the next TruthQuest Q&A.